On a dark, warm night in May of 1914, a fog rose up from the St. Lawrence River in Canada to swallow up the two ships sailing its waters. Minutes later, the two would collide in a screech of metal that signaled impending tragedy. One ship would stay afloat and make its way back to port safely, newly laden with the living and dead alike. The other would sink, taking over 1,000 souls down with it. It would become the worst peacetime maritime disaster in Canadian history. Before that morning, however, that ship was merely the Royal Mail Ship Empress of Ireland, the Canadian ocean liner that transported thousands to new worlds. I'm not here for the grand schemes, and now neither are you. Long history very short, this is Little Slights, and in this week's episode we'll be discussing not a person, but an event lost to the shadows cast by history's limelight. Let's talk about the Canadian Titanic. Empress of Ireland's true beginnings started not on the sea, but on the railways of Canada, and in the minds of an American man rising quickly through the ranks of the Canadian Pacific Railway Company. His name was William Cornelius Van Horn. The company, the country, and Van Horn had big dreams of expansion, of outreach, of new avenues of trade and transportation. The first step was the mightiest, to build a transcontinental railway for Canada. Van Horn, who had been made general manager of CPR in 1882 after an illustrious career as a railroad executive in Illinois, United States, soon moved to vice president, then president, then chairman of the board of CPR, and under his guidance the company would see the railway started and completed, and in half the time they expected. By 1887, the railway was comfortably enough underway that Van Horn had time to turn his attention to other interests, namely the launching of CPR's Sea Transport Division, a joint venture between CPR and the Government of the United Kingdom to cover trans-Pacific journeys and shipments between Canada and East Asia. It would be called Canadian Pacific, founded in 1887 there in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. From its first fleet, three ships chartered by a third-party company, Canadian Pacific would in three years go independent and run its line under its new name, the Canadian Pacific Steamship Company. Soon, the CPSC would be the largest Canadian operator on the Pacific. In the late 1880s, though, this burgeoning shipping empire traced its routes from Vancouver to Hong Kong to the Philippines and even Hawaii. This was a double blessing for Canadian Pacific, as European passengers could disembark on Canada's eastern coast, take the railway across the country, and leave Vancouver to reach Asia. Business was booming, and only increased when the CPR negotiated a deal with the British government to carry mail between Britain and China via the Canadian routes. To cover these routes, CPSC would need to expand their fleet. They commissioned a specially designed line of ocean liners they would call their Empress Line. The first three were built in Barrow, England, and named the RMSs Empress of China, Empress of India, and Empress of Japan. Each held accommodations for 770 passengers in total, and would go on to have perfectly average careers with a few highlights. China, for example, would see Archduke Franz Ferdinand across the seas before it was scrapped after a non-fatal foundering in Japanese waters in 1911. India would be refitted to a hospital ship in World War I. Japan would hold the speed record for crossing the Pacific Ocean for over 20 years and was also refitted for World War I as an armed merchantman ship. 
The Empress Line was performing well and traveling their Asian-Canadian routes regularly and without issue. But beyond the mail trade, there was a growing need for passenger ships, as the number of immigrants from North America and Europe, and vice versa, began to grow. In 1903 alone, CPSC transported 23,400 passengers through their Beaver Line, three ships they had acquired from the purchase of another company. China, India, and Japan were impressive ships, but not only were they on the wrong ocean, CPSC wanted to go bigger, faster, and more comfortable for their new Atlantic route between Liverpool, England, and Montreal, Quebec. So in 1904, they ordered a twin pair of ocean liners to be built at Fairfield Shipbuilding and Engineering in Glasgow, Scotland. The Empresses of Ireland and Britain were designed by naval architect Francis Elgar, a shipyard director known for building innovative vessels in a short amount of time. The twins were screw liners, steam-powered ships that were propelled by, well, propellers, or screws. Two screws in this case, with four blades each, to bring the ships to a service speed of 18 knots, or 33 kilometers per hour. Each ship had two funnels and two masts, with the traditional red-bottomed black hull and white upper decks that come to mind when picturing these old ocean liners. By dimension, Ireland, and also therefore Britain, was 570 feet long, 65.7 feet wide, and 36.7 feet deep at its maximums. Inside the hull were seven passenger decks and ten watertight bulkheads containing 24 manually operated watertight doors. This split the hull into 11 compartments, and theoretically, in case of disaster, Empress of Ireland could close its watertight doors and remain afloat with up to two consecutive compartments open to the sea. In practice, the designers had already made a fatal error. Can you identify it? On January 27, 1906, Empress of Ireland was launched. Available to the public were 1,542 berths. 310 were in first class, which was complete with promenade decks, a music room, a library, a cafe, a dining room with a great glass dome ceiling, smoking rooms, and a grand staircase not unlike the one designed for the Titanic. The furnishings were sumptuous, if a little crowded, and cabins were two to four berths. Second class, in the stern of the lower promenade, held 468 passengers and had many of the same accommodations as first, just smaller and less fancy, as would be expected. Second class cabins were designed to be flexible, with some able to be converted to first class if needed, and some to third. Most passengers, however, would never see these accommodations. Empress of Ireland and its sister ship were designed to take advantage of the booming increase in immigration of the early 20th century and most of its passengers would therefore be sailing third class, which was split into two separate accommodations for old steerage, or the very lowest accommodations usually given to the destitute and the desperate, and new steerage, which is what people think of when they hear third class. New steerage held up to 494 passengers, and they could expect to share a cabin with up to five other people. Old steerage, which could be up to 270 passengers, shared bunks in three sections of open berth. These passengers' only private space would be their own bunks, and they were usually only provided a single blanket. On some ships of the time, they did not even have pillows and had to use their life preservers as substitutes. It was not a pleasant trip in steerage, but it would get the passengers to their new life, and thousands of people would take that chance on Empress of Ireland over the next few years. 
On that Thursday in 1906, 1,257 people were the first of those thousands as Empress of Ireland sailed its maiden voyage from Liverpool to Quebec City. 119 first class, 342 in second, and an overbooked 796 in third, with over 100 people having to be left behind in Liverpool for the next trip. The Irish community in Canada were thrilled and flattered that such a prestigious liner would be named for their country, and had already crafted silken flags to present to the captain when Empress of Ireland arrived in Montreal. It would take less than a week for the presentation of those flags to happen. Empress of Ireland and her sister ship, Empress of Britain, were meant to do a weekly service between England and Canada, and had been designed with the speed to achieve that. Empress of Ireland arrived at the mouth of the St. Lawrence River and began her way upstream to Quebec City on July 6th. After six days' turnaround, she was headed back to Liverpool on July 12th. And for the next eight years, Empress of Ireland would ferry over 187,000 people over the Atlantic and carry thousands in volume of mail. But by far the most popular leg of the journey was from Europe to Canada, where nearly 120,000 immigrants sought a new life in the growing North American country. Many of the 67,000 passengers on the return trip to Britain were those same immigrants going back to their homelands to visit friends and family. It might not have been the largest, grandest ship afloat, but Empress of Ireland was very much a ship of dreams in its own right, carrying the promise of a brighter future on each of its voyages across the oceans. The ship saw alterations and updates over the years. One such update came after April 15, 1912, when the RMS Titanic sank, killing over 1,500 people. Afterwards, a criticism of the disaster was the lack of lifeboats, which led to major changes across all maritime vessels. Empress of Ireland had previously had wooden lifeboats. After the disaster, these were replaced with 16 steel lifeboats and 26 wooden collapsible lifeboats which in theory would carry 1,686 people in total, over 280 more than the Empress of Ireland was meant to carry. Additionally, in 1913, Empress of Ireland was equipped with wireless, call sign MPL. The big alteration of 1914 was a change in personnel. In May, the Empress received its new captain, Henry George Kindle. Kindle had only been a ship captain for a few years at this point, but his career before his appointment to the Empress had been interesting, to put it mildly. In 1900, he had survived the shipwreck of the SS Lusitania, not the famous Lusitania, another one. He then worked with Guglielmo Marconi, Italian inventor of radio and eventual Nobel Prize winner, in developing ship-to-shore radio. To give you an idea of how important this was, Marconi's work would go on to save hundreds of lives on the Titanic when, despite many issues with the communication, the ship's radio operators were able to get a message out to the RMS Carpathia to aid them. Kindle would move up to his own command in 1908, and in 1910 was made captain of CPS's SS Montrose. Just a few months into his command, and hundreds of miles away in London, Holly Harvey Crippen was making waves in England after the murder of his wife, Cora. He had fled after being questioned by the police and boarded a ship in Antwerp, Belgium. That ship was the SS Montrose. Foolishly, Crippen hadn't chosen to go third class, which would have kept him out of the eyes of the officers and the crew. The new Captain Kindle recognized the fugitives on his ship and had his telegraphist telegram British authorities. Quote, Have strong suspicion that Crippen, London, seller, murderer, and accomplice are among saloon passengers. An inspector from Scotland Yard caught a White Star liner and met them in Canada, 
arresting Crippen and leading to quite a bit of fame for Captain Kindle. Kindle's proven capability and quick, decisive thinking probably made him a natural choice to Captain Empress of Ireland, and his first voyage from Liverpool to Quebec City went as well as could be expected. On the 28th of May, 1914, RMS Empress of Ireland launched from Quebec City for Liverpool on what was reportedly Kindle's first trip out of the St. Lawrence River, with 1,057 passengers and 420 crew aboard. It wasn't as packed as it could have been. First class in particular was sparse, only 87 passengers. Notable among them was Lawrence Irving, son of stage actor Sir Henry Irving and an actor himself, heading home with his wife and stage partner Mabel Hackney after a long tour of Australia and North America, and Sir Henry Seton Carr, conservative politician and former member of the House of Commons of Britain. Second class was over half capacity at 253 passengers, most of them Salvation Army members, along with their families, traveling to the International Salvation Army Congress in London. Third class was near capacity at 717 passengers, many of them laid-off Detroit Ford workers returning to Europe. This ship's crew was, as usual, predominantly Irish and English. The passengers and crew had spent one glorious springtime day milling around the deck and familiarizing themselves with the ship before setting off down the river in the late hours of May 28th. Most of the passengers and crew went to sleep, ready to face the wide ocean on the morrow. But they would never see it. At 1.38 a.m., Empress of Ireland had just dropped off their river pilot and was still close to the southern shore when it spotted the lights of a Norwegian collier named the Storstad, which was heading upriver nearby. No matter, it was, up until the next few moments, a quiet, clear, balmy spring night. The voyage was smooth sailing. The Storstad was reportedly eight miles away off Empress of Ireland's port, or left bow, with the ships currently on course to pass each other port to port, or left side to left side. However, keeping this course would take Empress of Ireland very close to the shore, and off its intended course. So Captain Henry Kindle decided, with miles and river to spare, he could safely turn to port and sail for open water. This left turn meant that the Empress of Ireland was now heading towards the center of the river, and this intended course now meant that when the two ships crossed, it would be starboard to starboard, or right side to right side. The new course was laid, and the ship turned left. No one could anticipate what was going to happen next. But the thing about spring is that the chill of winter has still not quite burned away in the warm glow of summer, and strange weather anomalies often occur when the two temperatures mix. The St. Lawrence River was still cold in May, chilled by the icy runoff from further upstream. In contrast, the night winds were warm. When they hit the cold water, they produced an unexpected, dense fog that swallowed up the ships on the river. Empress could no longer see the Storstad, nor could the colliers see them. It was 1.47 a.m., just nine minutes after the first sighting. Later, the first mate of the Storstad would swear that the last thing they saw of the Empress of Ireland was its big red navigational light that set on her port or left side, meaning that the Storstad thought that the Empress of Ireland was still close to the southern shore. They assumed the ship was merely passing them on its original course, port to port. They had not realized the ship had turned, and so the Storstad went forward in a slow starboard or right turn. Through the night came three sharp, loud whistles. Captain Kindle, unnerved and uncertain due to the sudden fog, was ordering his engines full astern, which meant that essentially the Empress slowed to a snail's pace in the water. 
Kindle decided to keep to his course and wait for a sign that the other ship had passed. Then he would go forward. Instead, he saw something much worse. Off their starboard side, the on-duty, on-deck crew of Empress of Ireland saw two lights appear through the gloom. It was the Storstad, bearing down on them with no chance of avoiding a collision. Kindle immediately ordered a sharp turn to starboard, hoping to swing the ship far right enough through the water that Empress would only receive a glancing blow, but it was far too late. The ships collided. There are conflicting reports as to how fast the Storstad was going when it struck, but speed might not have even mattered due to the shape of the bow and how heavy the Storstad was. It was lugging 10,000 tons of coal. Author James Kroll would write in his book, 14 Minutes, that the Storstad's bow had gone through the liner's steel ribs as smoothly as an assassin's knife. It had torn a hole 350 square feet into the hull of the liner. A significant portion of that was underwater. Water poured in 60 gallons a second, causing the ship to list starboard almost immediately. Making matters worse over time was that many passengers and crew had left the portholes open to enjoy the nice, peaceful night air on the St. Lawrence River. As the ship tipped further, more water would continue to pour in through the portholes, causing a further list, and so on. The watertight bulkhead doors meant to keep the ship afloat even if two of her eleven compartments had been exposed to the sea were no use in the face of the onslaught. They had been built to be manually operated, and never updated for automatic use. Chief Engineer William Sampson gave the order to shut the doors, but on the starboard side at least, a good number of them were already halfway underwater. Sampson phoned the bridge, advising Captain Kindle to beach the ship to save it. Do the best you can, Kindle told him, regarding the engines. And the engine room crew did, for as long as they were able. Meanwhile, Kindle ordered all hands to be alerted, lifeboats to be prepared, and he sent an SOS call. The collision was significant enough to jolt most passengers and crew awake. Chief Steward Augustus Gade ordered his crew to wake the passengers that were still abed, get their life jackets on, and send them to the deck, where they would soon be launching lifeboats. Sadly, for a lot of passengers and crew on the lower starboard decks, mainly the third class and some of the second, it was too late. The water was coming in too fast. Later, survivors and historians would console themselves with saying that at least their drowning was quick. What crew could help had to prioritize, and that meant facing the harsh truth that it was those passengers on the upper decks that were most likely to survive, and those passengers that had to be focused on. They still tried to save as many as they could, some of them going door to door to wake anybody who was still asleep. Two of those awakened by a crew member were Michael and Patrick McAlevey, greaser and scullion of the Empress, respectively. The cousins made it. The crew member who saved them did not. Perhaps that brave crew member had been Harold Jones, bedroom steward who was last seen by a fellow crew member going below deck to help more passengers to the lifeboats. He was never seen again. Or maybe it was seaman Thomas Corrigan, who would later die saving the young man who had been his onboard neighbor on Empress of Ireland since Liverpool. There was no shortage of heroic acts amongst the crew members trying to get all the people they could to the deck. Six minutes in, an Empress of Ireland had completely lost power, plunging the ship into darkness. Of the 16 metal lifeboats, only five had been successfully launched, with a six capsizing as it was lowered. 
This was in part because the port side deck of the ship was now so high in the air its lifeboats could not be launched at all. Below deck, hundreds still scrambled to escape the rapidly rising water and make it above. One of those desperate souls was Stanley Baker, a bellboy on the ship, leading his older brother Thomas to safety, when, unfortunately, a door was sealed shut between them. Trapped on either side of the door, Thomas begged his younger brother to keep going and leave him behind. Reluctantly, Stanley did, and he survived. Thomas did not. The ship now completely out of power, Chief Engineer Samson rounded his crew together and made his way to the deck. Most of his men would survive, later being fished out of the water by a lifeboat manned by the ship's butcher. But there was at least one, a William Clark, who had survived the sinking of the Titanic as well, who could not recall how he got on the lifeboat at all. Meanwhile, Augustus Gade made his way to the bridge, where Captain Kendall still stood, intending, as all captains do in these situations, to go down with his ship. Could the Empress be beached, he asked, and Kendall replied no. The engines were dead. Well, this looks to be about the finish, Gade said. Yes, and a terrible finish it is, too, Kendall agreed. Not long after, the Empress gave a sudden, horrifying lurch sideways. Kindle and the others were thrown from the bridge and into the water. Those out on the deck, meanwhile, those suddenly faced with the encroaching water, began instead to climb. Across the wooden planks, up through the portholes, they climbed to the port side as the water crept up the deck. One of those climbers was Grace Hannigan, who had just recently turned seven. She was on the Empress with her family to go to the Third International Salvation Army Congress. Her father, who was a member of the band, had just conducted the orchestra on the ship the previous afternoon, and the Hannigan family was looking forward to a lovely trip on the ship, followed by an even lovelier holiday once the Congress was over. Now, Grace was clinging to her parents as they made their way atop the railing and waited with the other families. Her parents told her not to be scared as the water drew closer. Grace had been frightened when she got on the ship, you see, unwilling to sleep close to a porthole because she believed that was where the water would come in. She and nearly 700 passengers sat and waited and told themselves not to be scared. And for just a brief minute or two, it seemed the ship had ceased sinking. Perhaps some of them probably thought the captain had managed to run the ship aground after all, and they could stay there until rescue came. Then, at 2.10 a.m., the bow of Empress of Ireland rose out of the water and the ship began its final slide. It had sunk in just 14 minutes. Hundreds were tossed into the frigid waters of the St. Lawrence River. The five lifeboats as well as the Storstad were still nearby and began pulling as many people as they could out of the water but between the noise, the lack of light, and general panic, there was only so much they could do. Survivor Alice Bales would later recall going into the water in vivid detail, though she could not remember the actual sinking. Quote, I was getting away from the swarm of people who were around the ship when a big man, wounded in the head, approached and clung to me. I was trying to shake him off, for he was pulling me down, when I saw his head fall forward. I knew he was dead. He drifted away and disappeared. I do not know who it was. It was horrible. I was drifting away myself. When the boat sank, the suction took me down. I involuntarily began to paddle with my feet and came to the surface. 
Then I saw a man swimming. It was then quite light. I watched him, and though I cannot swim a stroke, I imitated his arm motions and found I got along a little. I was picked up. Augustus Gade, thrown earlier from the bridge, was unable to swim, and only survived by clinging to a body still wearing its life jacket until rescue came via a collapsible lifeboat. The morbidity of using a corpse to survive notwithstanding, he fared better than Patrick Heron, a cook, who went into the water and had to stay afloat for seven hours before being rescued. Little Grace Hannigan hit the water and went under twice until she found a bit of wreckage to hold on to, but she had lost her parents in the chaos and could not see them anywhere. What she did see was one of the lifeboats nearby, and she called for help until they came for her, whereupon she lost consciousness. She woke up on the storestad. Her first question, where is my mother? No one had an answer. Perhaps one of the worst of these stories was that of actor and first-class passenger Lawrence Irving. He'd made it to a lifeboat, made it to safety. But when he turned and realized that his wife Mabel wasn't with him, Mabel, who couldn't swim, he immediately went back into the water to search for her. They were never seen again, and their bodies never recovered. The Storstad had become the obvious place to put the survivors until additional help could arrive. Captain Kindall, who had been pulled from the river by lifeboat 3, directed rescue operations from there. He would fill his lifeboat up with survivors, tow them to the nearby Storstad, drop them off, and row out again. Over the next few hours, the Storstad and two government steamers, the Eureka and the Lady Evelyn, would pick survivors and bodies out of the water. After two hours, however, the hope for actual survivors was slim, as anybody left in the water had likely either drowned or succumbed to hypothermia. Exhausted, Kindle allowed himself to finally be brought aboard the Storstad where he confronted the skipper and told the man he had sunk Kindle's ship. His anger, though, was a drop in the ocean compared to the misery, suffering, and grief surrounding him. Lawrence Irving, his wife Mabel Hackney, Henry Seton Carr, Harold Jones, Baker, nearly the entirety of the Salvation Army band, all were gone. 1,012 people were gone. 840 passengers and 172 crew. Of those lost were 437 men, 269 women, and 134 children. Grace Hannigan, the little girl now ensconced in blankets and asking for her parents, was the youngest survivor and one of only four children to make it off the Empress alive. Out of the 65 boys on board, only one had lived. One. As for the Empress herself, she was currently settling herself 130 feet deep on the river's bed so shallow that you could see its mast and funnels through the water if you looked closely. It's unknown how many bodies were still trapped within her hull. The survivors were taken from the Storstad, Eureka, and Lady Evelyn to the city of Ramuski. Several would die there of pneumonia. Those that were deemed well enough to travel were sent to Toronto. Along with the living went the recovered bodies, set up in the Toronto mortuary for identification. It was there in that cold room that Grace Hannigan was shown her father's body. He had drowned in the river after they had lost sight of each other. Her mother was never found. There was, of course, an inquiry into the disaster, though it was ultimately inconclusive. The stories of each captain, that being Henry Kendall and the Storstad's Captain Anderson, were just too different and conflicting. Both maintained that they had chosen a course and stuck to it, and there was no decisive evidence that either was lying. Like with most disasters, it was a train wreck of factors. 
Kindle's decision to change course, the Storstad's assumption of what side the Empress of Ireland they were on, Storstad's decision to change course, the fog, the slowing of the engine, the shape and make of the Storstad's bow, the rapidity of the sinking, and the manually operated watertight doors. All of it combined into a horrible miasma of bad luck and tragedy. The commission ultimately decided that the blame should fall on whoever changed her course during the fog, and therefore it was the Storstad's fault for altering her course to starboard. The Norwegian authorities who investigated the wreck blamed Captain Kindle for trying to pass starboard to starboard, which was against protocol. In the end, Captain Kindle and the CPR won, if there was any winning to be had. Henry Kindle would go on to work on several more ships, including one voyage where he saved 600 refugees on his old friend the Montrose, and even surviving his ship being torpedoed in World War I. The company itself would win a $2 million lawsuit against the owners of the Storstad, and seize the Storstad itself to sell. For my part, I can't help but agree with the conclusions drawn by both inquiries. But no one could anticipate the fog. No one could anticipate what was going to happen at all. In the heat of the moment, decisions are made, and only afterwards are they seen for the mistakes they might be. For the survivors, life likely moved on quickly. World War I was just around the corner, and the space for grief and trauma became vanishingly small in the upcoming years. Many of the survivors of the crew went right back out to sea. Besides Henry Kindle, Augustus Gade would go on to serve on the Melita and Empress of Scotland, eventually becoming CPS's shore steward in Liverpool. Stanley Baker became a second officer and married in 1924. Patrick Heron, the cook who had been in the water for seven hours, continued working on ships but reportedly never recovered from the sinking. He died in the mid-1920s. As for little Grace Hannigan, she was sent to live with her uncle. A year after the disaster, she finally accepted that her mother was never coming back. She started working for the Salvation Army like her parents as an adult, and she soon got married. Every year on the anniversary of the sinking, she traveled with other Salvation Army survivors to the monument that had been established in the cemetery in Toronto. Its inscription reads, in sacred memory of 167 officers and soldiers of the Salvation Army promoted to glory from the Empress of Ireland at daybreak, Friday, May 29, 1914. It's just one monument of several, including the one that serves as a headstone for the mass grave which stands on a coastal road near the site of the sinking. There is another in the Rimouski Cemetery, and the CPR erected its own monuments in Quebec. Empress of Ireland was the worst maritime disaster in Canada in peacetime. But those last two words are key when looking at its impact in history. The year was 1914. World War I was bearing down on Europe and stretching its fingers into North America. And the tragedy of the Empress's sinking would be lost to bigger, bolder, and somehow even more terrifying headlines. Caught between the Titanic, the Lusitania, and the sinking of ships and losses of hundreds that would seem to become near routine during the war, including, even more personally to Canada, the horrifying events of the wreck of the Mont Blanc and subsequent Halifax explosion that killed nearly 2,000 people, Empress of Ireland became a footnote in a decade defined by death. With that said, the Empress has never been forgotten, especially not in Canada and outside of that has left a lasting impact on naval design. The investigation into the disaster led designers to change the way bows were built, 
From the reverse slanting that was common at the time, the kind that the Storstad had, which punched through the Empress's hull, to a raked bow, prow forward, that could minimize the force of collisions under the water, hopefully preventing the massive damage and rapid sinking that ships couldn't hope to prevent or mitigate when they happened. In popular culture, the event has been commemorated on stamps and in museum exhibitions throughout Canadian history, particularly at the 100th anniversary in 2014. The Canadian Museum of History called Empress of Ireland Canada's Titanic, and the Maritime Museum in Pointe-à-Pere, which is near the sinking, has almost 200 pieces from the ship on exhibit. Quebec, in particular, has taken actions to declare the wreckage of Empress of Ireland a site of historical and archaeological importance, and a historic site of Canada, the first underwater site to be declared such in the territory. The wreck is now a protected site, though it can be visited by experienced divers. So if ever you sail down the St. Lawrence River, keep a lookout for a white buoy bobbing quietly on the water near Pointe-à-Pere. There lies the wreckage of the RMS Empress of Ireland. Her hull, her masts, her funnels, her beds and chairs and fine china, luggage and keepsakes and treasures. But remember not just that 96th fatal voyage, but also the 95 that came before. 187,000 passengers, immigrants and entrepreneurs, dreamers and visionaries, a thousand thousand hopes and ambitions, served in six days or less on the Empress of Ireland.